Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Hello listeners, welcome to Freedom of Species, the radio show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. I am Davita and I'd like to personally acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I extend my respect to all Wurundjeri elders and thank them for their continuing care for country. My co-host, as usual, is Trev. Hello Trev. Hey everyone, welcome to a new year Yes. Freedom of Species, or for us, it's our first show for the year. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation being the traditional and rightful owners of the land that I work and play and exist on and acknowledge that that they never ceded sovereignty and that their land was invaded and taken by force without their consent and that's ongoing today as part of colonisation. I'd also like to, I guess, with our national holiday, Invasion Day, that happened just recently... I think we really have to put First Nations voices front and centre and think about what they're saying and the the differences of what they're saying because they don't all agree on everything. Um, and I think an important part of that is that there's a growing movement that wants to abolish Australia Day um, and that's saying that changing the date is meaningless and could actually cause more harm by making people think that once they've changed the date, they've solved something and mm. then they can go on with their colonial, um, you know, whitewashed celebration on a day that they feel like they have a justified right to be happy to celebrate when I don't think there is anything to celebrate. We don't have a treaty, um, colonization's ongoing, and I think that's something that we really should be thinking about, especially as white people, settlers mm. on this land. Yeah, thank you, Trev. Um, so for our first show of the year, we are also very excited to welcome our first guest today, our guest is Emily Mayer. Emily is a PhD candidate at Canterbury University in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And she studies possums in New Zealand and how they're framed as pests. She has the research activism blog Framing Speciesism. So welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, well, we're very excited to have you. And um, we'd love to start this show by hearing more about you. So you've been on the barracks for many animals, not only possums, throughout your life. And yeah, could you share with us what set you off on this this path of animal advocacy? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think it's really important to know where people come from and reasons why they are the way that they are. Um, hmm. I think for me, I was perhaps born as um, a very emotional person that was very sensitive towards animals even as a tiny little kid I just always would gravitate towards them worms on the on the side of the road I would always pick them up put spiders away so it was just something innate that was in me at that point but in my first year of university I took a course on meat geography so it was not just meat geography but there was a whole um, lecture series on basically the economics of agriculture and it was the most depressing series of lectures of my entire life. Can I quickly interrupt just because I don't know maybe our listeners don't know what exactly is meat geography? So it's it wouldn't really be called meat geography per se but it kind of looks at how meat and the consumption of meat and the consumer behavior behind how people consume animal products or agriculture. This class was just kind of looking at the geographical patterns of why people consume meat where they do. Mm. Because my undergrad's actually in human geography. Mm -hmm. um, right. And so I've taken lots of different cohorts of courses that would kind of touch on different things. 
in one lecture and one slide, there was this little section on animal geography. And I saw it and was like, ooh, I want to do that. <laughs> of course, it was a first year thing. So it was very uh, difficult to actually <laughs> find somebody that wanted to. I mean, you can't just do under animal geography for a whole four years or I would have. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, my kind of journey really started with that course um, and looking at how people consume meat because I kind of knew it, but I didn't know it um, and seeing mm. it on the screen. I actually went home with my boyfriend at the time. We were making pizzas. We had pepperoni and traditional toppings put on a pizza. And I just started sobbing in the kitchen. And it was poor guy, but also not poor guy because he wasn't very understanding of my emotions at the time. (laughs) But I was just sobbing relentlessly in the kitchen over this pepperoni because I was just kind of relating it to what I'd seen in the class. And it was that point. I just, um, some people can't do it that quick, but I just, it was kind of like, nope, done. I'm not eating meat ever again. Um, Mm -hmm. So that kind of stopped me. I became a vegetarian at that point. It was quite quick. And then that really started the ball rolling. So I knew I was an animal person, but that just accelerated it to a point that, I don't know, I think a lot of people that are vegan or activists kind of know that point where you get this, like, it's almost like this moment where everything becomes clear and you kind of see what's happening. And that happened to me. And luckily when I finished my undergrad, I actually didn't get into this master's program that I wanted to. And I ended up um, doing some volunteering after I kind of lived in Melbourne for a few months and realized that I didn't want to just settle down. I wanted to kind of do something. So I went to Thailand um, at an elephant sanctuary and I helped volunteer there. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of this series of events of things that happened and things that didn't happen that kind of just pushed me to do and to make choices Things I probably wouldn't have picked before, even though I love animals and I would love to have worked with them, I wouldn't necessarily have always pursued this route of going to do things. It costs a lot of money, costs a lot of time, I'm taking lots of risks, but I think it's probably the best kind of outcome for me because I get to really pursue what I care about. Like, yeah, I can't imagine doing anything any different. And if I can spend every day of my life helping animals, um, different species of animals, even though the one I'm looking at right now are possums. Yeah, my journey has just kind of been all over the place, but it's been a lot of mistakes and choices that have kind of brought me here. And I'm really glad that it did. So I was vegetarian. Well, I've been, or I was vegetarian for 10 to 12 years, long time. And I didn't really get that connection between vegetarianism and dairy and eggs for quite some time. I ended up, I actually, um, worked at this school in a place called Bong in South Korea. And I was vegetarian when I moved there. And it was very difficult being vegetarian in a place that my Korean speaking skills are really not that good. So every time I go to a restaurant, I just have to list off all these things like, oh, I can't have this, can't have this, can't have this. <laughs> and it just, yeah, it became kind of an issue because sometimes you say, oh, no chicken, but you'll still have some chicken broth. So that was difficult. But when I was in Korea, I started my master's in anthrozoology. Um, So I did that online um, as a distance learning course. And that's where I started dabbling in veganism. So I really just started meeting people that were already vegan. And I was thinking, well, I agree with everything they're saying. Why am I not already doing that? It was kind of a quick succession. And then now I've been vegan for five years now, maybe. Um, Yeah, I've kind of lived in many different places around the world. And it can be quite difficult being vegan or vegetarian, depending where you are. I wanted to ask you if you noticed much of a difference between some of the countries that you visited or lived in, in lots of different, I guess, animal industries. Like, for example, I know, you know, you've done some work on the dairy industry specific to Canada. Mm. But have you noticed much of a difference between what you've seen in New Zealand um, mm. compared to Canada in the dairy industry or any other comparisons that you've noticed, I yeah. guess, in different areas? Yeah, I did a paper on planned obsolescence in the dairy industry, particularly in Canada. Um, and the concept of planned obsolescence is essentially building into a business model that your products are not going to last for a long time. Um, so if you just think of why you have to get a new phone every few years, when that same item could have lasted 
lasted a lot longer. And applying those same principles into animal agriculture is a really interesting way of looking at how disposable animal bodies have become. Yeah. So that's something I was thinking about. And when I moved to New Zealand, initially, seeing the way that everything is geographically laid out is very intriguing, not necessarily in a good way, because on the face value, it seems very positive. Mm-hmm. Um, cows are, at, well, you see lots of cows outside, they're sheep, they've got lots of space. It seems like they live way better lives than the animals in factory farms at home. But I think there's a lot that goes on underneath the surface. Um, and a lot of it's image-based too, because the country wants to pride itself, at least New Zealand wants to pride themselves in their animal agriculture and primary industries are one of the main industries in the country. It has the appearance of being a very positive place for animals here, but there is this kind of darker underbelly that I'm really starting to explore that contradicts a lot of those positive notions about New Zealand as a country. And not that Canada is perfect either, definitely not, but It is interesting coming here and seeing how fabricated things really are. And if you challenge that, or if you were to talk to anybody on the street about it, I feel like I couldn't really talk about it. Yeah. Have you seen the documentary Dominion? No, I love documentaries, but I have a very hard time (laughs) watching. I I think my mom for Christmas one year got me the um, BBC Earth set. There's like tons. It's like all of animals. She got me this massive set and it's just all about different animals all over across the world. In theory, I love stuff like that. But it's when they show like the predation, I I can't handle it. Mm. So Yeah, and then um, Dominion type docos are are quite next um, level. in your face. Yeah. <laughs> I know, next and Dominion I mean yeah. I love it, but for me I sometimes get into this deep hole of empathy that I have a really hard time getting out. Yeah. I have seen recently, I have um a colleague here in New Zealand that just did a documentary called Milk. Oh, oh I haven't yeah. seen that yet. I'm yeah. Um yeah, it's really, really good. And it looks at the dairy industry in New Zealand. Hmm. Um, Because New Zealand is a country that prides itself as well on its image. Um, It's 100% New Zealand, um, the environment, like everything in New Zealand hinges on those images. Hmm. And if anything were to attack or belittle or be a threat to that image, then even though what I study is possums, it's actually very related to the dairy industry and to beef industries. A lot of the reasons why people don't like possums have a lot to do with that, as well as forests. I also wanted to quickly mention um, another documentary on the dairy industry, which is Cow by Andrea Arnold, which is also, I heard it's quite impressive. Mm. Horrible, but impressive, yeah. Um, I haven't seen it. It's just called Cow. It's called Cow, yep. It's, uh, It's time to take a break. So, Emily, do you want to introduce the first song for us? Sure. It's sung by an artist named Israel, I cannot pronounce his last name, but it's called Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And it's a song my dad told me reminds him of me. And it really, to me at least, is about pursuing your dreams. And when you're doing something and you're kind of putting yourself out there to the point that you are advocating for animals and you want to make that your life, your life's mission, it can be pretty scary, but... As he says in the song, (laughs) there are things that are over the rainbow.
3CR listeners, I'm Giselle Hanna from Accent of Women and Asia Pacific Currents, and I'm appealing to you to subscribe to 3CR to keep radical voices on air. I've been a volunteer and broadcaster at 3CR for over 20 years, and I can say categorically that radical voices like ours that bring you stories of extraordinary, incredible women from across the world leading grassroots struggles Well, those voices just aren't welcome in the mainstream media. You won't hear about the struggle against Samsung's human rights abuses against its workers in South Korea. You won't hear about the plight of the Myanmar resistance against the coup on any other station, at least not the way we tell it here at 3CR. So be a comrade and go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Or call the station on 94198377. Have you heard of long COVID? If you or someone you know have had COVID-19, you may still experience symptoms weeks or months later. There are many symptoms of long COVID, but the most frequent are extreme tiredness, shortness of breath, and muscle aches and joint pains. Anyone can experience long COVID, including children. You can find information in your language on the Health Translations website, healthtranslations.vic.gov.au. Just type long COVID as a keyword. A 3CR supporter. Hello listeners, welcome back to Freedom of Species. You just heard the song Somewhere Over the Rainbow by, in my best efforts, Israel Kamaka Vivole. Um, you're back on air with me and Trev and our guest Emily. Trev and I have a bit of our COVID voices, as I caught COVID at the dentist last week, probably. And we have been isolating, so we're doing this recording remotely. So just excuse our voices. (laughs) Not the best. (laughs) Not the best. We're at 3CR Community Radio, and since we are a community-based radio station, we depend on our members, so please subscribe to 3CR as a member. That will help a lot in keeping us on air, keeping all the wonderful programs of 3CR on air. So we're talking about possums with Emily Major, who studies them in New Zealand. And what's can you tell us, Emily, what's the deal with possums in New Zealand? What's been going on? Yeah, um, possums, they're the, when I say possums, I'm actually referring to the brush tail possum, which... Mm 
people in Australia will be quite familiar with, and even people who live in New Zealand will know what I'm referring to. But they are a marsupial that was brought to New Zealand um, in 1858. They were initially brought here to establish a fur trade by Europeans. Yeah. So it was initially that whole, the reason for bringing possums was purely economic based because there were so many forests and because New Zealand didn't have predators possums, like their populations just boomed. There was a short period of time that possums in New Zealand were actually protected. Um, They were a protected species because they were so valuable. And that was the early 1900s. But then you kind of notice a switch around the 1950s where they were revealed to be a noxious species. So for people that know possums, they are arboreal folivores. So they live in trees, um, they're nocturnal, they um, have pouches. So they've got usually about one joey a year. And they do eat a lot of vegetation, but they usually keep to themselves. Um, and they kind of live either alone or with their joey. And they do like to be in remote private places. So it's not often you'll see them unless, unfortunately, if you're in New Zealand, you will see a lot of them on the road, which is just awful. Mm-hmm. But Yeah, which is one of the reasons I don't like driving here in Australia, because <sighs> it's just a graveyard. Oh my goodness, the amount of times I've pulled over just to check their pouches. Yeah, Mm. no, it's awful. Like people here, it's similar with cane toads, but in Australia, um, people will sort of to hit them. And it's a common thing for possums, at least, to be so hated. And a lot of this has to do with what my amazing supervisor, Dr. Annie Potts, Mm. has written a lot of work in this area about what she calls the propaganda campaigns against possums. Because what happened... And the 1980s, it was discovered that possums were vectors of bovine tuberculosis. Mm-hmm. So if they were to transmit bovine TB to the cattle, especially in New Zealand, which relies heavily on dairy mm-hmm. and beef, that is a massive threat to the economy. So it really shifted as soon as that was discovered. So this hatred of possums at the time wasn't really a hatred. It was more of a nuisance. They, oh, they get in my pear trees, my peach trees. They eat my fruit, my roses. It's annoying. And it really shifted into something that was a bit more aggressive. And it's just gotten worse and worse. Mm. Uh, So for possums now, there's a campaign called Predator Free 2050, which is essentially a a government campaign to completely eradicate the whole region of possums, rats, and stoats by the year 2050. And they're using that primarily through using sodium monofluoroacetate, Hmm. which is 1080. Um, It's this completely awful poison. But essentially, possums were brought here for a fur trade. And because they were so successful, and they spread so quickly, which was a positive thing at the time, there became too many possums. At least they decided that there were too many possums. And Mm -hmm. it became quite, yeah, it's quite a complicated complicated why they're hated so much. But a lot of it has to do with the economy. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned it got quite violent and you you mentioned people swerved to hit them. Um, oh, yeah. Can you tell us a bit more how since the 1950s, was it? What forms of mm-hmm. violence other than the poisoning came up? Yeah, well, I mean, this also kind of relates a bit to identity. And you'll kind of see where I'm going here in terms of protecting your identity. And at least for New Zealand, colonial settlers didn't really have an identity for New Zealand. They didn't have a lot of buildings at the time. Um, They didn't have anything to heavily rely on. So what theorists have been thinking that a lot of the relationship that New Zealanders have is actually with the physical environment. There wasn't enough appreciation given to Indigenous Maori perspectives of how they, I mean, they lived here for hundreds of years before, but at the time, European settlers really saw this as, oh, this is our region, it's fresh, clean, we're going to start anew. And so the physical environment was really that, and Mm -hmm. the identity comes from that. It comes from being a patriotic Kiwi that cares for the the rugged outback, the, the bush. These ideas of a pristine nature are really or underpinning all of these conversations, because that's directly what the possum is framed to attack, is this pristine nature. Mm. The possums come up as this enemy. And if you look at 
um, conservation education messaging or conservation material around this, you'll see how the wording and the language is used in a way to really frame the possum as this enemy that you must destroy. As a nation, we must destroy this enemy. And it's very militant in the way that it's being kind of shown. There's a lot of encouragement of community trapping and getting the community involved. Because the possum is a nocturnal marsupial, they're in the middle of the bush. They're not going to be living like they would in Sydney or somewhere where they're right beside people's houses. They do do that here, but a majority of the possum population is actually in very rugged, inaccessible areas, which mm. presents a problem, at least for New Zealand, where native bush is seen as kind of this, I mean, it's seen as the like an icon and Mm -hmm. emblematic thing of what New Zealand wants it to market itself to the world. So the possum really has just become a scapegoat for all of these things that's happening in the country. And the community is positioned as the people to solve it. So children are getting involved in awful acts of violence. There's community trapping groups that will go out together um, and hunt and trap possums. There's possum throwing contests. There's dead dress up Awesome contests if you've seen those. Oh. So essentially it's seen and it's framed as a positive thing. So you going and killing out that possum body, you take that body back. And if you think about it in terms of war and you just kind of erase the fact that it's an animal, if you were to take a dead combatant of your enemy, bring it back, dress it up and make a mockery of it, it really is down to these basic ideas of good, bad, what is seen as acceptable to belong here and what is not mm. seen as acceptable to belong here. And it really is important that this violence is accepted in a way because you can't eradicate the possum if people see them as this cute, cuddly creature. It just wouldn't happen. Mm. So it's so aggressive in the way that the framing and the messaging is done that the possum is completely de-individualized. Even though the country, New Zealand as a country, legally recognizes animals as sentient, possums don't legally get that recognition, as with another list of exemptions within the law. And so it's interesting that violence is kind of framed as the only answer because it's a direct attack on identity. Yeah. It's very, it's a very complicated thing to like wrap your head around because it's attached to all these like big ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to ask, um, because you mentioned just before about like Maori culture and being like a clash uh, with the colonial culture. Mm -hmm. um, do you know much about what the possum means to Maori culture? For some of my research, that was something that I was very interested in exploring, but I wanted to do it in a delicate way. Because I am in Te Reo Maori, I am um, Tawili, which means that I'm like a non-New Zealand foreigner. Mm -hmm. So I'm in this position where I wanted to give an opportunity for people to be included in my research if they wanted to include kind of Maori perspectives. But I got about 25 participants and only a few identify as Maori. And so at least with my research, it's very qualitative and it focuses on interviews mm -hmm. with people. I kind of had to go with who responded to my like uh, recruitment. Mm. But I will be including more perspectives in the discussion chapters just about Maori kopapa and the worldview um, and how that can be kind of contrasted. But I am aware that my perspective is very new. I'm very new to this, but I want to make sure that I am giving an Indigenous perspective, but not doing it in a way where I'm speaking for other people, but kind of mm. alluding to and showing that there is a lot of research The especially Maori vegans that I've talked to, possums are very much a part of the natural environment for them, but it is a divisive topic as well. Mm. And one that I haven't explored very deeply, mm. mainly because I, yeah, I'm in a very delicate position. I don't want to be that person kind of, yeah. Mm. I can, yeah, I understand. Yeah. I wanted to quickly mention, I've seen the pictures of the possum dead and skinned possums dressed up in competitions um, and it's yeah. really it's really heartbreaking that it has come to that and also the short-sightedness if there's if New Zealand is a dairy country and a beef country and an animal agriculture country that means that mm -hmm. so much of forests so much of the environment has been lost and mm. now possums are sort of made as as aggressors to this you know pristine physical natural environment it just seems out of whack 
that's mainly my main argument is that possums are being scapegoated for all of these errors that humans have done. We don't take responsibility here for the damage that we have done to the bush and to native species. And we're just putting it right on the possum, wiping our hands clean of it. And it almost makes us guilt-free for everything that humans have done, which I think is incredibly unfair. And it justifies all this violence towards possums that are just doing what they need to to survive. A lot of the information available is contradictory about whether they eat eggs or whether they eat baby birds. There's all of this kind of scaremongering that goes along Mm. with it. Mm. And it's really scary that this is what we're teaching children. And to have kids participate and dress up contests, how as a child do you maneuver that? And how do you get to learn what's right and wrong? Would you do that to your puppy? I hope not. Um, But why would you also do that to a possum? And so it's this also this delicate navigating of how do you develop your empathy in a culture like this? I hope to argue with my research that you can't navigate that and that you really should include more empathic and empathetic and compassionate principles. Because it's just, there's no excuse. Yeah. I think that's such a beautiful look at it that you say, how can you develop compassion in this culture? Showing that we need to change something. And what is, yeah, what are some of the pathways for that, do you think? Mm. I think for me personally, at least this is what would work for me, is just having positive interactions or having interactions with animals or having not necessarily encouraging interactions, but just Mm. to have experiences that contradict those dominant mainstream way of thinking about animals. So just meeting a possum. If somebody that you know has a pet possum that they rescued, I can promise you, if you spend five minutes in front of that possum, your whole perspective will be changed. I can, that's actually, that's a hundred percent guarantee money back. (laughs) I know that you will change your mind because they are soppy, lovely creatures and they don't deserve what's happening at the minute. And even if there is a problem that needs to be solved, we do not need to solve it the way that we are. Humans are so intelligent, but we don't use that intelligence to make kind choices, which especially as a nation like New Zealand, when they're, at least with the human population, we are outwardly seen as so welcoming and so compassionate and progressive. But with biological aspects of New Zealand, we're so conservative. It's like completely polar opposites. Mm. Very confusing and contradictory. But I think just having those interactions really can change people's perspective. Yeah. Um, I really wanted to ask, like, I guess, for people who haven't spent much time with possums, what have you learned about their behavior, their personalities, them as individuals? What can you share with us about the particularities of possums? Oh, I love possums. They're okay. So I've only met, probably only met three or four, um, and I've helped care for one overnight, which was so cute. Oh, sorry, I'm going to try not to get too... For the listeners, this is going to be a two-hour episode, or what? Um, five? What are you talking about? <laughs> sorry, yeah. Sally, you have to make way for us. <laughs> Plus, oh my gosh, so the possums that I've met, the most recent ones I met were two little joeys that had been rescued from their mom's pouches. Possums don't normally have twins, but these two were raised and put together at such a young age that they formed a very strong bond. And all I have to say is just imagine two little baby joeys who don't really know how big their body is yet, trying to like fumble around and eat some eucalyptus. It is the cutest thing that you've ever seen. So beyond just being cute, though, they completely contradict everything that you're told about possums because they're very gentle. They're quite quiet. They keep to themselves. But possums have what they call their person. So because they are still wild animals and they don't completely get domesticated, they usually attach to the person that raises them. And it becomes such a strong bond. And I haven't experienced that because I'm not in a position to be able to raise a possum and to give them a forever home. So I haven't directly experienced that, but I've seen it with a possum and their person. And it is the most wonderful relationship to witness because it's this connectedness. There's baby joeys that could be in the palm of your hand and you raise them and you keep them in your shirt so that they stay warm. And it's this like very raw relationship. You raise them from death. Like you are literally the only reason why they're alive. So I, I, there's some very strong pull there. 
yeah, every possum I've met has been, they each have their own little quirks and their favorite treats. Hmm. <laughs> like, can you share a quirk? Oh, oh, well, there's Forrest. She loves his one blanket. <laughs> and I remember, <laughs> yeah, you basically can't wash it. <laughs> So it just stinks. And you go in there and she's just like in her, she made a little bed and she's got the cutest, I think I wrote about it in my blog, the cutest little pink nose. And she just pokes her nose out and you can tell that she's hungry because she'll, she'll poke her nose out and you put a little banana or like a slice of kumara right by her nose. She, and she so delicately takes it. It's just the most heartwarming thing. I think what's difficult for me to kind of reconcile is that those experiences that I've had meeting these possums have nothing, there's no connection to what is told about them. Mm-hmm. So I just wish everyone could see what they're like. Yeah. Yeah. I am um, keeping with the more positive side of possums. From everything you've learned, what is the ideal future scenario? Like what, what is the end goal that you are trying to work towards in the reframing of possums away from pests into other, other beings? And what are the steps to get towards that final end goal? Mm. That's a great question. And it's a very important question. So a lot of time people do research and they don't actually come up with solutions that you can actually do or not being realistic. Now, if I were to say from my vegan background, my vegan feminist anti-species background, I would love possums just to be not a pest and to live in New Zealand. I think that they've been here for almost 200 years, well, 150 odd years. Mm. How are they not already a native species? To me, they are. But I do appreciate that native species of animals do need support as well. I don't want a kiwi to die as much as I want a possum to die. To me, there's no difference. But I do understand that we don't want to lose animal species, but I also don't like to differentiate between individuals. Mm. I like to see an individual animal as a worthy being. doesn't matter what they're born as. Mm. But I understand that's not what everybody, not everybody Mm. thinks that way. So for New Zealand, there's many different options that could be available depending on how resources are used. We could just say, you know what, possums are here to stay. Why don't we develop mainland sanctuaries, which are very successful. An example is Zealandia, which they do have, I do critique them a little bit, but Zealandia um, in Wellington is a very successful sanctuary, which houses many native species, but they've got predator fence and they're able to keep those species safe there, which I think is a realistic way to approach it. But what's currently being done, just thinking that we can completely eliminate rats, stoats and possums from the entire archipelago is just not realistic. It's expensive. 1080 is an incredibly awful way to die. You get lesions all through their bodies. It's just unacceptable. And there's a lot of evidence that it um, goes in the water supply. And so there's lots of bad things with that. It really is, I think, probably mainland sanctuaries or embracing some sort of genetic engineering of some sort. I do feel kind of uncomfortable with the idea of gene editing, but if done in an appropriate way where we could have some sort of birth control that could safely stop possums from having babies, which on a vegan animal rights perspective, I don't agree with that, but on a, okay, is this realistic? How can we deal with this issue of having too many possums if we just reduce the amount of babies they're having? That's something we can consider. I guess the main issue is that no resources are going towards exploring these. Mm. All of the, the funding is going towards eradication techniques No funding is going towards learning about compassionate conservation. And I don't really understand why not. It seems very confusing. And it seems like we're just going to do what the easiest, cheapest way to do things when lives are being destroyed. And I just don't think that's a way to operate as basic human beings. Like we should value all life. Mm -hmm. So I think for at least for possums, yeah, mainland sanctuaries, explore some sort of birth control or deterrence measures so you can protect the species that are valued here and then just explore more compassionate principles, which is not being done right now. But if people put money towards it, (laughs) Mm. then we can explore if it's something that's viable. Yeah. 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 Should we take another break? Yeah, we should take another break. We're going to listen to the song Fairy Lights by a local vegan Guthrie.
is all working late nights, making rents parked in the houses round here. Stays late, goes home, saves up for long, beat out sounds a little like. Take a joke, honey, love, it's funny. More than rest, more I'll make my money. Where'd you get these ideas? <sighs> Me home, park all alone. Papa said, Don't walk in the dark. Because we've sewn it through the media, we've a rape culture theater, and she tries not to dress the part. But his voice sounding sweet, calls her hers twice a week, singing, Sound up on the mess. And my suit looks hard to what regard, and my less looks like a dress. So I still. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Be a part of your community radio station. Step up and get the jab to step out for all things fab. For random chances, dances and cheeky glances. For rainbow communities, sports, arts and families. Because every step we take from here will bring our communities closer to stepping out. Victoria's LGBTIQ plus community organisations are behind you and are here to help. So let's step up, get vaxxed and step out. To find a rainbow-friendly clinic near you, visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash LGBTIQ. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Hello listeners, welcome back to Freedom of Species. You just heard Fairy Lights by Guthrie. We're here talking about possums with Emily and it's pretty bad, a possum's life in New Zealand. And I was wondering, Emily, because I study bats here in Australia, and there are some things that bats have going for them, even though it's quite anthropocentric. You know, they're native animals. They're considered keystone species who help with seed dispersal and pollinating many tree species. But I was wondering, is there something that possums have going for them that might be sort of a spin for their bat Mm -hmm. public image? Yeah, Definitely. There's a few things that they definitely have going for them. Um, At least with New Zealand, um, we lack a lot of larger animals that operate as seed dispersers. Hmm. We used to have moa. They are no longer here. But possums, there was one study done in the Banks Peninsula that looked at possum seed dispersal, which 
is really kind of an exciting way of thinking of, okay, there's this niche that is empty. We need someone, we need kareru, which is like a New Zealand wood pigeon. We need bigger animals to disperse these larger seeds. Mm-hmm. There is the potential that possums could do that. There's not enough research into it to say whether or not they do. There are some tree species as well that have been thought that possums can carry it on their fur because their fur is so dense that they can disperse them that way. That could be seen as like a positive thing on an awful resource side, which I don't think animals should be resources, but a lot of people do see the fur industry as something that's really positive. Still? Is it still going? Believe it or not. Okay, this is going to shock you. Possum fur is framed as eco-friendly, cruelty-free fur in New Zealand. Wow. Yeah, there's several articles I can send you. uh, And it's actually, I'm writing a blog post on that right now, actually. Mm. Just about how it's seen as eco-friendly because you're removing a predator, even though I will very strongly argue that possums aren't predators. They're actually very, very gentle. They don't predate on anything. Mm -hmm. They don't go seek out your puppy or something. Oh, my God. Yes, it's seen as a positive thing to buy possum fur. And it's said Uh to be cruelty-free because it's eliminating pest that is the possum. I had no idea. Well, it makes me angry. When you go into shops and you go into souvenir stores and they sell these awful things, they're like, imagine like a small piece of paper and there's like a donut shape on it of fur and it's called a willy warmer. And you could buy those at shops and there's like these jokes. So some of them are nipple tassels and they're pieces of the possum fur cut out. And it's a joke that you can buy at souvenir stores um, and it's framed as like, oh, ha, 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 the possum is negative. This is why they do this. And here, buy this for your partner. That's a willy warmer, this little donut mm. that's possum fur. What is going on here? Why is that even a product, first of all? <laughs> like the fact that it is even, the fact that it exists. <laughs> yeah. 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 Damn. I wanted to ask you, I guess it's crossing over from um, directly about possums to some of the other issues that you've mentioned um, before and in blogs that I've seen that you've written. You did mention in one of them about violence in society. Yeah, we're just hoping you could tell us a bit about that and maybe how that can tie into violence in society as a, as a concept as well. Oh, yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so while I've been doing my PhD, I have been tutoring and marking for a course um, that one of my professors, um, Dr. Nick Taylor, and it's called Violence in Society. So, and so it got me thinking about these ideas, okay, violence in society. And because Nick is an amazing vegan animal activist as well, she did this whole lecture on animal abuse, but it did get me to think, okay, so how does this violence relate to things that happen in society? So how does this violence towards a possum relate to kind of the wider issues that we're seeing in New Zealand, because New Zealand has one of the highest rates of domestic violence, as well as the highest rates of animal abuse. There is something going on here. I think it's something that researchers really need to look further into, especially looking through the research that I've done. The way that children and communities are being encouraged to behave in certain socially acceptable forms of violence can be very confusing for people to navigate. So who is the appropriate being to direct this violence towards? There's a lot of research showing the link between human violence and animal violence. So if you abuse an animal when you're younger, we know the the triad where it can go towards humans. This is definitely something that I'm kind of looking at. And it's very, you know, it's very concerning because what are these kids doing as they age? I'd be interested to see kind of longer what happens in 10 years with a lot of the kids that were in these pest control programs Mm. and how do they relate to not only other groups of animals, but how do they relate to their peers and how does this relate to other groups of people or seen as other groups of people? If If someone's seen as an other, is it okay then to treat them less because you had that experience when you were younger that, oh, that possum is seen as an outsider, they don't belong. So we must do this to eradicate them. Does that kind of thinking translate over to the way that we behave towards other people? I, of course, don't know the direct answer to that, but I, based on the research I've seen, I could definitely see there be a link. Mm. And it's very concerning, especially when we already, as a country here, 
we already have incredibly high rates of violence already. Mm. And we don't seem to be trying to do much about that. And it seems to be that our focus in New Zealand is on human forms of violence towards other humans. But Mm. I think it's much more simple than that, because if you really go down to those binaries of who belongs, who doesn't belong, who's good, who's bad, that really is kind of where these ideas stem from. And if we can really try to focus on being more empathetic and compassionate in the way that we approach topics, that can really change the way that kind of we interact with the world. And that's what needs to be done. People need to embrace empathy and compassion. And that was something that I had a really hard time. I didn't think that that was something I could do in university and in, in my research to try to include that. Because it kind of goes against all these existing expectations of what research is supposed to be. But emotion is at the heart of the human experience. Mm. It's important to include. Yeah. Yeah. What I love in your descriptions is how you, you sort of, you weigh both of them, you know, violence against other animals, violence against humans. Mm. And that's a very intersectional approach. Like it's not only you know we as vegans we care about animals but it's not we're not only focusing on animals here mm. and there was just very insightful way of how you described how a possum was being vilified because he held a woman hostage on a road it was made to seem as if he held a woman hostage and mm. this was very uh, insensitively described as the ripper ripper on black road I just wanted to to share that I thought I found your the way you said okay well if the ripper refers to Jack the Ripper who actually mutilated women it's very insensitive <laughs> to them as victims to you know framing a possum as as such a murderous mm-hmm. murderous being and also it vilifies the possum as well in that it's it's just not you know you, you said so yourself they're really wonderful animals and it just mm-hmm is outrageous to make these comparisons. Now the yeah the Black's Road Ripper post. I saw that and I was dismayed. I was thinking, what? And anybody who meets a possum or knows a possum, that would never happen. It would never a possum would never come up to you and act so aggressively unless there was something severely wrong with it. Mm-hmm. There is a um, a news story that came up several months ago of this possum, the, a very young possum, which was likely a joey, came up to this woman. She described it as she was being held hostage, hostage by this possum. And police came and I am shocked, but they actually released the possum, which is very surprising given you're supposed to bring them to get euthanized. Um, mm. So I'm very surprised that they actually released the baby. But what I found interesting was just looking into the kind of the language being used and even be compared to a victim of murder. So that was something I was exploring in that blog yeah. post, kind of the etymological kind of way that we use language and social policing in a way that kind of using language to reinforce these negative things about possums. Um, and it later was found out that that possum was actually an escaped Joey named Scoby Lunchbox. Um, So I don't, I I need to actually look it up whether or not the Joey got back to the family that was taking care of her. But that was the only reason why a baby Joey was even going up to someone. They'd already been acclimated towards humans. They Mm. associate humans with food and affection. And even though possums, I wouldn't say are like affectionate creatures, like they will be with that person that's their person. Mm -hmm. It was interesting looking at the way that that was described and how it just was accepted as normal and seen as funny to call them a ripper because possums are scary, right? That's the whole messaging here. Yeah. And that whole blog post was a response of me being like, nah. no, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. And everybody I know that has possums, they were just laughing, but also were kind of sad about it too. It's like, is this what news is these days? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I can share that. Yeah. No, there's definitely something going on there about, if you look at message boards, which just don't, but if you were to look at message boards of any possum stuff, you'd see so many, yeah, social policing is what I call it. I mean, I'm sure that's probably an official term somewhere, but it's interesting mm-hmm. to see how people talk about it online and how animals are framed. Yeah. yeah. When it's a conversation about, 
identity and patriotism, people get very passionate yeah. about it. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I think we have to wrap up. We're out of time, unfortunately. We'll have to make way for the next show to air on 3CR. But thank you, Emily, so much for joining us and for, you know, educating us on, on possums. The possums who are coming from Australia. The common brush-tailed possums? Yeah. Yeah. It's been absolutely great to have you and hear about your work. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, too. I really appreciated you giving possums some airtime because they really need more advocates out there. Mm. That was great. Thank you for everything you shared. Yeah, and, and best of luck with finishing the PhD thesis. Yeah. I hope it finishes soon. <laughs> Freedom of Species will be back next week at 3CR Community Radio, uh, 1 till 2 p.m. on Sunday. And again, please consider subscribing to 3CR Community Radio as a member because we can really make use of all the all the financial supports and emotional supports um, at the community station. You can find more information about subscribing to 3CR at um, 3cr.org.au. So stay in touch with us via Facebook or Twitter, and we will see you next week. We're going to end with the song Chills by Leah Flanagan. chills up and down my spine little chills and autumn sleeping in through the blinds get thrills exploding in my mind little thrills stars are beginning
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.